Good morning, all of you. I would say it's good to see you this morning, but I have to imagine you. But I am already imagining some of you sitting out there eagerly awaiting the word from the Lord, and I appreciate that. It does my heart good to know that there are real people on the other side of this technology because we're still connecting. And I do, I do that when I'm on my walks in the morning. I'm imagining you and where you are and what you're doing, and I pray for you. And I'm glad that we're connected, even if it has to be virtually. So thank you for connecting with us in worship today. I'm praying that God is going to be personal and powerful in his word, because it's very practical as well. It's a good alliteration, too. August 2nd, we're still in 1 Corinthians, making our way all the way to chapter 4 in our study of 1 Corinthians. Paul's letter to the early church in Corinth, where he had planted that work and trained leaders. And then he got word that there, was, there were some problems there, some dysfunctionality, some errors that needed to be corrected. And so Paul writes, as uh, Steve mentioned this morning in our Growth Encounter Time, a sternly worded letter to the people in Corinth. Well, what do you do when things are seemingly out of control, that your circumstances are just overwhelming and they seem impossible? How do you cling to hope? We're going to answer that question today as we work our way through the first 13 verses of chapter 4. There's a really good book by C.S. Lewis, and in that book, C.S. Lewis says, God whispers in our pleasures, speaks in our conscience, but shouts in our pains. And he goes on to say, pain is a megaphone to rouse a deaf world. Boy, I know that's been true about me. There have been times, seasons in my life when I just kind of got into a routine. And even as a pastor, even though I was in the word every week, it got to be a role that I was used to. And it just seemed almost too familiar. I was doing things out of habit rather than out of a strong motivation to do the right thing or to dive into God's word. It became a job at times for me. I would only look at things as illustrations that I might be able to use rather than saying, yes, but God, what do you have for me personally through this passage today? And so there've been times when suddenly there comes a pain in my life that is a megaphone. And then I can hear God shouting and I want to press into him much more personally, much more deeply. I wanna spend more time with him, both listening and reading his word because he speaks loudest to me through his word. I don't know if that's been true for you or not, but I suspect maybe there are some of you who can identify with that. Maybe you get a phone call from the doctor's office and you thought, oh, I thought this was just going to be a routine checkup. And yet they're calling back with some news that says we need to get you in here immediately because we need to share some things with you. Or maybe there's a certified letter that you get in the mail and you think, well, why would it be certified? Why do I need to sign for this? And then you open the letter and you go, oh, yeah, this is serious. And there's a pain there that suddenly becomes God's megaphone and he's rousing you to action and you start to take him seriously. and You start looking into his word and listening more intently. Maybe you grew up hearing about God, but then you just sort of dismissed him after childhood for whatever reasons. Maybe you grew comfortable over time with God stuff, but that was about it. It was just a part of your normal weekly routine. And yeah, we do church. That's what our family does. It's, it's what we do. We're God people, but it really wasn't very deep. Maybe you hadn't really thought about God, not very much at all until a great big pain hit and it became a megaphone. There are very different experiences. And it's interesting how Two people can have almost identical, very similar experiences, and yet, for some reasons, wind up at wildly different conclusions based on those experiences. Paul certainly exhibited that, and he sees that in different people that he writes to as well. He was a guy who knew about pain. He came from a subculture of Jewish leadership, and he was a strong, uh, very feared leader because he had power and he had authority. And there were some people, followers of Jesus, who were really afraid of him because he had the power to have people arrested and thrown into jail. 
he was a Jesus follower after that. And I'm sure there were a lot of people who thought, wait a minute, this doesn't compute. How could that guy become this guy? And can we trust him? Why would somebody switch teams that way and put themselves into a situation that was really unpopular? Because as you can imagine, he was very unpopular with Jewish leaders after his conversion, when he started actually becoming a proponent of the risen Lord, a spokesperson for the gospel of Jesus Christ. And his life was several times put in danger. I mean, you read in the book of Acts, all the things that Paul endured, he was definitely in danger, not just of being attacked verbally, but physical danger. Well, I know some people who would put themselves in harm's way for whatever reasons. We've known caregivers, nurses. I have a cousin who's posting on social media about her wearing all of her protective gear because she works in a hospital in Flint. And she talks about the dangers and the high numbers of COVID positive patients that they deal with on a daily basis. And she does that because she feels that this is a part of her calling. That's what she does. She feels like she's making a difference in the world and the success stories that come out of her work are extremely rewarding. Same thing with doctors. We have several doctor friends. We have one in our own church, works in the University of Michigan Hospital. Why does he do that? Well, it's a calling. Social workers, my own wife works in a homeless prevention agency and deals with a population of people that sometimes might come in and even though she's trying to help them help themselves, they see her somehow as an authority figure or somebody that might be trying to put her thumb on them. It's not the case. She's trying to help them. And yet they would come in a sort of a combative frame of mind. And she would be thinking, okay, help me help you. I really want to try to extricate you. I want to pull you out of where you are. I want to get you out of a bad place and get you into a much better place. But I'm needing some information from you so that you can do that. Why would people do that? Because it's a calling. Policemen, same thing. Oh my goodness, you look at the news today. Why would a policeman want to be a policeman right now? For many, it's a calling. We have a very good friend. He actually participated as an actor in Boulder Faith, that musical that some of you got to see and a few of you got to participate in back in 2009. And Larry Rothman is a highway patrolman. He puts himself out there every day. Why would he do that? Because it's a calling. And he feels like he's making a difference. Same thing with Paul. He put himself out there. He knew that it was a calling. He knew that the rewards were going to be eternal. There was a lot at stake, and he was willing to put himself in harm's way, sometimes literally, for the sake of the gospel. Well, he made some discoveries. After Paul had poured himself into the work in Corinth, stayed there long enough to really build up a foundation for that church and to appoint and develop leadership there, then he found out, after he'd gone on to other locations, that there were people attacking him from Corinth and that there were people creating divisions or kind of a tribal warfare, so to speak, on a microcosmic scale within the local church there. And it was dividing the people and creating unrest and dysfunctionality, and it was ruining their witness to the watching world. Team politics were strongly at work on a small scale. I don't have to tell you that team politics are at work in America right now. All you have to do is see any of the news and you can choose CNN or Fox and you're looking at it through two wildly different perspectives, but boy, there's team politics happening. You just boil that down into a small organization or a small church situation. It's the same principles at work. People want to be powerful. They want to have control. They want to align themselves with the person they think has the greatest opportunity of being perceived as the most powerful or the winning team. And then you start to see the dividing taking place. And they start to elevate situations or issues that might be tiny, and they build them bigger than they should be. And they start camping out on issues that are on the periphery, that should be secondary, rather than focusing on their main mission, keeping the main thing the main thing. And Paul knew that they were starting to drift away from their key message, which was the gospel, because of team politics. And he's writing basically to say, stop it. <laughs> Here's the passage. Let me read it for you. I really enjoy the New Living Translation this time. And so let me read it to you and let the, word, the words pour over you this morning. 1 Corinthians 4, 1 through 14. I added that 14 because you need to hear the heart of Paul at the very last 
because to stop at verse 13, it sounds a bit harsh. So I want to make sure that you understand some of his motive when we get to verse 14. You'll see what I mean when we get there. So look at Apollos and me as mere servants of Christ who have been put in charge of explaining God's mysteries. Apollos was left there. He was continuing the work, a really good spokesperson, a great Bible teacher, as you'll recall. Verse two. Now, a person who is put in charge as a manager must be faithful. As for me, it matters very little how I might be evaluated by you or by any human authority. I don't even trust my own judgment on this point. My conscience is clear, but that doesn't prove I'm right. It's the Lord himself who will examine me and decide. So don't make judgments about anyone ahead of time, meaning before the Lord returns. For he will bring our darkest secrets to light and will reveal our private motives. And then God will give to each one whatever praise is due. Dear brothers and sisters, I have used Apollos and myself to illustrate what I've been saying. If you pay attention to what I've quoted from the scriptures, you won't be proud of one of your leaders at the expense of another. For what gives you the right to make such a judgment? What do you have that God hasn't given you? And if everything you have is from God, why boast as though it were not a gift? You think you already have everything you need. You think you're already rich. You have begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. <laughs> I wish you really were reigning already, for then we would be reigning with you. Instead, I sometimes think God has put us apostles on display like prisoners of war, at the end of a victor's parade, condemned to die. We have become a spectacle to the entire world, to people and angels alike. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools, but you claim to be so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are powerful. You're honored, but we're ridiculed. Even now, we go hungry and thirsty. We don't have enough clothes to keep us warm. We're often beaten, we have no home. We work wearily with our own hands to earn our living. We bless those who curse us. We're patient with those who abuse us. We appeal gently when evil things are said about us. And yet we're treated like the world's garbage, like everybody's trash, right up to the present moment. This is why we need verse 14. I'm not writing these things to make you ashamed but to warn and counsel you as beloved children. And this is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we ask for your spirit's guidance as we seek insight into this portion of your word. I pray that we will each have open hearts and ready minds. So speak to us today, we pray, through your Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. When Paul was talking about feeling like he was being put on parade and that they were prisoners of war, so to speak, that puts me in mind of this guy, Admiral James Stockdale. Start reading about some of his accomplishments. He's an amazing man. United States Navy Vice Admiral, Admiral and pilot, the kind of guy who can fly planes off of an aircraft carrier. He was a prisoner of war for over seven years and held in the same prison, the Hanoi Hilton in North Vietnam, as John McCain, whom you've probably heard even more about than most people have heard about James Stockdale. An incredible guy. He endured incredibly harsh treatment, as you can imagine. I mean, almost daily torture, trying to break him down. And somehow he had to find the resolve to keep putting up with impossible overwhelming circumstances and yet hold out hope that they were going to prevail in the end. Well, he passed away in 2005 from complications from Alzheimer's, but he had a remarkable career after the time he was let out of the Hanoi Hilton. And he wrote this. This is an important paradox that he wrote that has been quoted as the Stockdale paradox. He says, you must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end that faith which you can never afford to lose. You should never confuse that faith with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever that reality might be. Here's another way to say that. 
Don't give up hope, but don't deceive yourself about your current reality either. I kind of feel like that's what Paul writes about quite often. And we see a little bit of that in 1 Corinthians. He's saying, okay, yes, you should cling to your faith, cling to your hope, but don't deceive yourself. Don't deny that there are difficult things going on here. The Bible is replete with that. The Bible teaches that constantly. Jesus taught that. He taught that to his own disciples. He wasn't trying to paint a rose-colored picture to these disciples and saying, man, if you'll just trust me, life's going to be great. You're not going to endure any hardships. He says, no, no, people are going to be divided, even in your own families over me. If you choose to become my follower, here's the reality of what you're going to be facing. People are going to hate you because you love me. And yet we can live with that and still hold out hope that we're going to prevail in the end. Both of those things can be held up together at the same time. That's the paradox. A paradox is that thing which on the surface looks like it just doesn't really fit one with the other. It's like it's contradicting itself. But the more you dive into it, the more you look deeply into it, the more you think, no, that really bears out as a strong and profound and deep truth. And that's the truth that Paul is holding out for us too. You can hold out the hope that we are going to prevail in the end. And at the same time, we're going to be dealing with some nearly impossible and sometimes daunting and painful circumstances. Believers in Christ have a strong faith based on Jesus Christ. And yet that hope exists while we face difficult circumstances, including pandemics. <laughs> Here's some highlights as we start working our way through. I've sort of paraphrased the highlights as we work through quickly, and then I've got some really practical applications, including some application that comes from a guy who actually is a survivor of COVID-19 who was interviewed from another pastor. And I'm, I'm going to share some applications which grow out of this passage for us today. Here's some highlights. All Christian leaders are a gift to the body. Paul says that. These first three verses of this passage. Consider us as gifts to the body from God. We're placed there, and he says that even in other portions of this letter and in some of his other letters. We're gifts to the body. Those of us who are teachers and leaders, God gifts the body with us, with you teachers. We are really blessed in our small body of Christ to have some really excellent teachers and leaders. And I praise God every week for them. So grateful for them. But we're also servants. And we ought to recognize that. We need to recognize what Paul recognized, that God's the one who ultimately judges whether what we're teaching is going to be true or not, and that we'll be validated. So we have to always constantly be seeking his validation and not just worry about what others think of us, but what God thinks about us. Paul knew it's easy to think about what other people think of us. It's easy to become a people pleaser. And it's easy to get led astray by that because you can start to get pulled into somebody else's camp or school of thought and get pulled away from the word of God, which should be our plumb line. But Paul tried very diligently not to get pulled away from the strict plumb line of the word of God as his measuring stick for what we're supposed to be teaching based on the gospel of Jesus Christ. That firm foundation that we talked about at the very beginning of 1 Corinthians. Paul points ahead in time to when everybody, including the leaders, are going to be judged. He said, so don't prematurely judge others, including leaders. God's going to take care of that. But you just hold on to those good teachings, those things that are going to be the, the precious stones, the gold, the silver, the things that are going to stand up through the test of times and be purified in the end. And all those things, the wood, hay, and stubble, that's going to be burned away. That's all in context with what he's been teaching us up to this point. And then all those secrets, including even the motives for why we did what we did, they're going to come to light. God's going to judge fairly. Don't worry about that. He's pretty sure that he's right. He says, I'm fairly confident that what I'm teaching is right on, but don't take my word for that. Just because I think it's right doesn't mean it's right. You have to hold up my teaching even with God's judgment because he's the one ultimately who's going to be the one to judge rightly in the end. All of us as teachers need to have that kind of thought in mind. That puts me in mind to Isaiah's words when it says, on that day, the day of the Lord, when the judgment's going to be happening, human pride is going to be humbled. Human arrogance will be brought down. The mountains shall be brought down. The valleys shall be brought back up again. Isaiah paints that portrait in a couple of other places as well. Only the Lord will be exalted on that day of judgment. That's our goal anyway. We're trying to make Jesus famous. We're not 
trying to make ourselves famous. We're not trying to build our name that will last. Jesus is the only name that's going to last. So for any gospel teacher or Bible teacher to try to put his or her name out there that would be lasting because we're a great teacher, one that's going to, that, man, they're going to remember my name forever. That's not the goal. In fact, I don't care if anybody remembers my name, and any good gospel teacher will say that. They'll say, we're exalting Jesus Christ. We want him to be remembered above everybody. His is the name at which every knee shall bow and every tongue will confess. Well, we should allow the word to guide our leadership. Every decision we make as a body of Christ should be guided by the word of God. And that's why we need good godly leaders, including godly elders who can work together because more godly wisdom coming together in group think. I think that was Steve Pipe that mentioned that in our first trip to Haiti. I borrowed that, Steve. Thank you. It's a good term. We do group think as we're trusting that God through his Holy Spirit will work through all of our biblical wisdom, coming up with what we really truly believe to be a spirit-led decision so that the body of Christ will be built up and that God will be exalted. We shouldn't go beyond what is written, Paul says. Some people think that there was some saying that was there, and I think the NIV didn't quite capture the, the interpretation as well as it could be into English there. I think Paul's really talking about his own writing in context, building up to that, to say, you shouldn't go beyond what I've already written for you in this letter. Don't go beyond that. Don't try to read between the lines. Just let the word guide you. In context, we shouldn't get puffed up. He says, I've already given you these wonderful things from the Old Testament, what, they, what we call the Old Testament. For them, it would be like the Torah, the first five books of the Old Testament. They had all these good teachings. And he said, don't go beyond that and start feeling that somehow God has gifted you in some supernatural way so that just because you have a thought that comes into your mind doesn't mean that God's given you to that and it should be exalted up to the level of Scripture. Be cautious about that. In context, don't get puffed up or conceited by revering one leader over another because all of us are going to be subject to judgment. And then in verses 8 through about 10, Paul uses some pretty sharp, scathing sarcasm here. I, you could probably hear that in my voice as I was reading this. He's using sarcasm. He goes, you think you already have everything you need. You think you're already rich. You have already begun to reign in God's kingdom without us. Paul exposes their hypocrisy with this irony. He's exposing their selfish motives. He says in verse 9 that he feels like that they, meaning he and other missionaries, other gospel teachers who are going to different locations and who are being persecuted, have been put on display like prisoners of war, paraded in front of others to be mocked and treated as fools. And he says, and yet there you are in your cushy comfort back in Corinth where we started the work, and yet you're sending word back. I'm getting word that you're actually attacking my leadership abilities. More sarcasm and irony, verses 10 through 13. Our dedication to Christ makes us look like fools to the watching world. But you are so wise. Can you imagine? It's just dripping with sarcasm. So we're ridiculed, but you're honored. We're treated like refuse. And this kind of word for refuse was pretty gross. It was like scum. It's like the kind of hairball that gets into the pipes in your sink that clogs up your sink. That kind of scum. The kind of stuff that when you get it out and you're holding on to it, hopefully with a rubber glove on your hand, you look at it and it just makes you kind of choke a little bit. And you think, oh, I'm going to throw this thing out. That was the kind of picture Paul was trying to paint with the specific word he used to say, we're being treated like that. People look at us like it's something that should be thrown out because we're disgusting to them. And yet there you are in your cushy comfort in Corinth, trying to build up your own team mentality because you want lots of people looking up to you as a leader and to put you on a pedestal. He says, now, I'm not saying these things to shame you. I'm saying them in order to warn you and counsel you because you're my beloved children in the Lord. I'm a spiritual father to you, so to speak. And you're my beloved children, my, my dearly loved children. I don't want you to go through the pain you're causing for yourself if you keep doing these things. I want you to escape that trap and get back to being spiritually led in wisdom from God's word so that Christ will be exalted and you won't fall from the painful things that you're creating because of your own behavior. Now, let me give you a little background to this couple because I can see that they're starting to help flesh out some practical 
applications from what Paul is teaching, the principles that are growing out of his teaching to the Corinthian church, which still has a lot to say about our American church today, and even Living Water Community Church. That's how practical it is. It's so relevant. Stuart and Kelly are from Georgia. You'll hear that in their twang. They're in the Atlanta area. Um, there's another pastor down there, Andy Stanley in North Point Church. That's the church that decided they're not going to go back into a building for at least to the end of this year. They made that decision because they saw that they were a hot spot and they care that all people matter. We're all made in the image of God and they're still seeing examples of people dying because of COVID-19 and they said we can't take that chance of reopening some of our campuses because they have eight campuses. They said we don't want to start having one of those campuses open and then have a, a breakout of COVID-19 and have people dying and then have to shut down for two weeks and have another campus pop up and then have them go through a shutdown for two weeks and the kind of negative connotation that has to people who are looking in from the outside to say well boy that's really loving of you. They didn't want that. So they've chosen to do that. And Stuart and Kelly are examples of some people who have survived COVID in their family because Stuart got COVID. Stuart and Kelly live in Georgia. He's been a pastor for years. He's a great evangelist and teacher. He has probably led more people to the Lord in his lifetime than most people I know. He's just got an incredible track record because God has gifted him that way. He's been a gift to the body of Christ as an evangelist. Well, Stuart... Uh, and Kelly have three grown children. Stuart was healthy. He's an exerciser. He doesn't have any comorbidities that he was aware of. He's, I'm guessing him to be in his early 50s based on the ages of their children. That's just my estimate. So he's not really in the category of being over 60, which would put people into that at-risk category. So he, of all people, would have said, no big deal. If this thing hits me, I'm fine. It'll just be like another flu. No big deal. He, he developed a fever and a headache. He's had that before, no big deal. Maybe it's just some slight little virus, you know. And this was way back in, in the early phases of this, like uh, late February, early March, something like that. Two weeks later, and this is just before the Easter season, he started feeling worse and he started having some of those symptoms that they said, well, I'm a little short of breath. And then he started feeling really awful. I mean, really awful. And there came a point at which he thought, I better go get seen for this. But they took him in and the doctor said, it's early enough in the phase of this thing that we don't think you have enough symptoms yet for us to prove that you have COVID. And it was before they had enough testing to go on yet because they were trying scrambling, trying to come up with enough tests. So they said, we can't test you in a test that's going to come back quickly enough to tell us immediately. So we're just going to send you home and help take care of yourself. But if you develop any worse symptoms, especially the ones with the respiratory ailment, come back and see us again. Well, it got serious. I mean, it grew very serious. It got serious enough that he finally told his wife, you need to take me to the emergency room. I mean, now. And he was gasping. He couldn't get enough oxygen. His lips were turning blue. Got him into the car. She said, I almost stopped at a fire station to drop him off because they have EMTs there. And he goes, no, don't stop there. He just knew that that was, he was serious enough. He says, I think I'm dying. You need to get me to the emergency room. So she got him there as quickly as possible. They took him in immediately. And sure enough, they said to her very quickly, yeah, we need to put him on a ventilator. His oxygen levels are desperately low. They did that. And then they came back a couple of hours later and said, we need your consent because we found out that he either was having or is having a heart attack. And she's saying, well, yes, of course, do whatever you have to do. So they got in there and took care of some of what was going on there. They found out later that they think it was because of blood clots, embolisms in his legs. One of them broke loose, went to the heart, had 100% blockage on one of his arteries. I mean, this is serious stuff. And so everything just escalated. All of a sudden, it went from, I have a fever and a headache, till two weeks later, this is big stuff right here. She started tweeting out to their friends and family, we need a miracle and we need prayer. This has become very serious, serious for us and we need prayer right away. Well, she wasn't allowed into the hospital or into his room. As you know, that's been the case in many of these situations. And so she would sit out in her car in the parking lot and look up at a gigantic wall of windows. She knew the general vicinity where his room was but didn't know which window was there. And because one of the nurses found out that she was out there praying for Stuart, she put a great big cutout blue heart in his window so that she would know which room he was in so she could be praying and she took a picture of that 
And that went viral and hundreds and then thousands of people started praying for the heart inside that room. Kind of reminds me what happened with our daughter Callie when she had myocarditis, viral myocarditis and a virus attacked her heart. And we had so many people, such an outpouring of prayer, praying for the heart of that specific person. And that's what people were doing for Stuart. Well, it got really, really touchy and it got tough. There became one point at which there were doctors saying, we've done everything we know to do humanly speaking. We've tried everything. We've pumped and so full of steroids now. We've done so many of these things. We don't know what to do next. And he's dying. We don't know what to do. And some of those doctors were praying people. So they were even praying for God's wisdom there. One of the doctors finally said, let's try one last shot because I've read about something that they've had some successes in other areas. Let's do a plasma exchange. And they did that. And within 24 hours, Stewart started to turn the corner. And then this went viral because Kelly, his wife, took some brief video of him being released from ICU when he was getting transferred to a regular room. And it was incredible to see the outpouring of love. What you can't see very easily because it's a small phone video was that he was trying to applaud them as weak as he was because he said, this is not my parade. This is for you guys. You risk your lives to try to save my life. So he was applauding them. So this is, watch this. Thank you. Very much. Thank you. Yeah. Well, you got well, a there was something that Stuart said in an interview that I posted so it will come up on both of our Facebook pages, the public and our private pages at noon today. So you can see the whole thing. It's 58 minutes. It's worth every one of those 58 minutes. I implore you. I urge you. Please watch this interview. It's powerful. He said something that he realized as he's trying to unpack what he and Kelly have learned through this experience. And he says, I think that certainty can become an idol. And this is where I think it intersects with what Paul is trying to teach the people in Corinth. He said there were certain leaders that they were so certain that their conclusions were right. And they were trying to build consensus with people on their team around their certainty about a certain doctrine or about a certain teaching. And certainty can become an idol. Listen to what he has to say about certainty as well. And this sounds really harsh, Andy, but I feel like we've made an idol out of certainty. Like we, and an idol isn't something, an idol isn't an idol because it has a particular, uh, you know, property to it. An idol is an idol because of the value you place on it. Right. And so much of our existence revolves around security and certainty. And what I think has happened in our life as a result of this is this unveiling of the fact that you've, you've got your value on the wrong things. The only thing you can trust you know, he, the writer of Hebrews says, Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He doesn't say your circumstances are, doesn't say your marriage will be, doesn't say your health will be, doesn't say your children will be, doesn't say your country will be, doesn't say the economy will be. Jesus is the same yesterday, today, and forever. So the question becomes then, why would I lean my life on anything but him? There came a point very shortly after um, the doctors had come back to Kelly and said, we need your consent to go in and take care of the heart problem. When she realized, I'm not certain that my husband's going to come out of this alive. And she had previously tried to build a lot on her certainty that if I just pray hard enough, God will understand that. And she said, I had to realize, yeah, I'm not certain about the outcome, but I don't have faith in the outcome. I have faith in God and I have faith in Jesus Christ, regardless of the outcome. And there was a powerful moment in the full interview when Kelly said she gathered her three adult children around her. And she said, kids, I want you to know that even if your dad doesn't come out of this alive, I'm okay. Of course, we're going to grieve, but I'm okay. I've been loved. We've had great years together. He's impacted the kingdom because he's led so many people to the Lord, he's gonna be in heaven forever, so he's gonna be okay, but I'm okay. You don't have to worry about me. So 
She was trusting in Jesus Christ regardless of the outcome. The Lord gave, the Lord taketh away. Blessed be the name of the Lord, as it says in Job. She was living proof that she had that kind of faith. The paradox that, yes, we were holding out hope, and we don't give up on the, the hope that we have in Christ Jesus, while at the same time we're still living with these impossible circumstances. That's the paradox. That's the Stockdale paradox, but it's also the Christian paradox. That's what the Hall family was living with through this situation. Joy and I have lived through that. I've shared that with you because I've been an open book before you. There was a time with our very first child, only just a couple of weeks old. She caught a virus, Katie, when she was just a baby. We had been in Michigan. I was being interviewed for my first after seminary job, which took us to Ann Arbor. We went back to Fort Worth so we could wrap things up there so we could move up to Michigan because they did call me. And then Katie comes down with this respiratory ailment, just a little tiny itty bitty thing. The doctors were saying to us, we don't know if she's gonna make it through this next 24 hours, only time will tell. So if you're praying people, we urge you to pray. And boy, were we ever. Katie made it, obviously. And we're grateful for that, but we had to pray that prayer of relinquishment when we said, God, she is yours. We know that you love her as much as we ever could. She's yours. We give her to you. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Same thing happened with our son after an automobile accident. When we saw the car after that, after that accident, we thought, how could anybody survive that? When we were being called to the hospital, we didn't know what we were going to find there. We didn't know the circumstances. We didn't know how damaged he might be or if there was long-term damage that would result from that. He's an amazing young man of God doing great work, working for the Salvation Army. I mean, it's just an incredible story. But at that time, we had to give him up to the Lord in the car, on the way, through tears. We were praying, Lord, we trust you. No matter the outcome, we trust you. Same thing with Callie. A couple of years ago, two and a half years ago, what is it, almost coming up on three years now, from the myocarditis. Lord, she's your girl. Of course we're going to miss her if she's with you, but we trust you. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That living with that paradox is an incredible thing, but sometimes when our worldview, even including our theology that we develop for ourselves, doesn't work for us, we need a different worldview. We need to expand our worldview to include leaning our full weight of all of ourselves onto Jesus Christ, because he's the only one who doesn't change. And that's what Stuart shares as he's wrapping up here. He's got a couple more things to say. And one of these things that he said about is from the book of Job, because he said he started reading from the book of Job after he got through this experience. And he said, my life is not nearly like Job's, but there are a few aspects of my life that were Job-like. And then he said, this is one of those statements from Job that really caught his attention. I, I read this week, and I think this parallels with what you're saying. Uh, the writer posed this question have you placed your trust in your theology or the God of your theology? And that's really easy for us to get confused. And the way that Kelly and our children have really inspired me is exactly what you're saying. The writer of Hebrews says that we can approach the throne of, of God with confidence and he'll give us grace and mercy. But those are not the outcomes we really desire. What we wanna do is go, well, no, we want him to live and we want him to be completely healthy and the writer of Hebrews goes, you can have confidence that he's going to give you grace to go through whatever it is that you're going to go through. Yep. And he's going to be merciful to you in that process. And it, it does, it pushes against this. If we get really honest, I think all of us, we tend to live, our, our faith winds up being a churched up version of the American dream yep. with just enough Jesus to make it seem legitimate mm -hmm. and what's happened to us is that that's been knocked out from under us. And now you go, okay, are we going to, are we going to trust Jesus? Are we going to lean the full weight of our life on him? Or are we going to trust what we think about him or what we believe about him? And those are two different things. That started leading me down a path. And I've done this, oh, I've wrestled through this thing on every one of my morning and evening walks this week. How does this apply to us specifically? And even in our local small body of believers, how are we living out the fact that we're putting 
our full weight, leaning our full weight of our lives on Jesus Christ to a watching world. We're supposed to be wise in the way we relate to outsiders because we're supposed to be a part of God seeking and saving those who are lost. I mean, that's our mission. So how are we coming across to people who are on the outside? And this is where I started really wrestling with some things because I, I appreciate where some churches are coming from, like John MacArthur's church out there in LA, in California. I get it. I understand there's some real inequities there. I really do. I understand that from people saying, yeah, bars can be open. Abortion clinics can be open. If we're saying, well, black lives matter, and they do all lives matter, but shouldn't unborn babies' lives matter as well? Where's the inequity there? They were seeing that there are so many inequities happening there that for them to continue to shut down churches and say, but you're not essential. We're going to shut you down because we're going to keep you in the margins. They just pushed back against that by defying a government order to meet together and worship. Okay, I get that. I really do. But this is where I start thinking, trying to combine all the things that we're learning and the principles that Paul is teaching us here. Are we trying to become, in a sense, developing a team around what we believe so that we become just as militant and just as motivated by revenge and anger as the people that we're angry at? If somebody from the outside came to us and said, Aren't you putting people in danger by meeting together because couldn't they catch COVID and isn't COVID still killing people? So isn't there some hypocrisy there? See, I'm trying to think from the outsider's perspective in, and I have to think, if I'm really trying hard to reach an outsider and if they bring up that issue with me, would I be honest enough to say, yeah, maybe so. Maybe the right thing to do is to say, let's just be fair across the board. And let's shut down the casinos and let's shut down the liquor stores and let's shut down the abortion clinics because all should be equal, including the churches. Because if we're really continuing to fear COVID-19 that could still kill people, let's just be fair all the way across the board. But instead, we might run the risk of coming across as being just as judgmental and defiant in our trying to assert our rights as people on the other side of some of those issues. See what I'm saying? Let me put it this way. Let me use this analogy. And I'll, I'll make it personal for me and see if you can fit into this category for yourself or not. <clears throat> because I know that my daughter has a comorbidity because of her viral myocarditis, which she had three years ago. An unknown virus at that time attacked her, her heart. In that specific case, her body was reacting to that. So she had this huge inflammatory response, which nearly killed her. Because the first night she was in the hospital, her blood pressure crashed. Everybody in that room who came in with crash carts, they were trying to figure out what was going on. They were scared. Joy was there. She had sent me home because I had to preach the next morning. So I was trying to sleep. Didn't sleep much, but I was trying to. She was in there fighting for her life because she had people in there trying to figure out what's going on. How can we get her blood pressure back up again? See, we've lived through that. That's a very real experience. And because we've listened to this one a uh, very smart guy from the UK who has no connections with our politics in the United States. And he said, now there's not a proven cause yet. Proving causality is different than just noting a connection, but he's noticed a connection between COVID-19 and some people who have had viral myocarditis and heart damage, even in some asymptomatic carriers of COVID. So he's saying more testing needs to be done to see if that's proven out over time. But that raises just enough of a question mark in my mind to say, okay, if Callie, my daughter says to me, well, dad, you say that you think COVID-19 is not gonna be nearly as damaging as people are saying it is. Are you certain about that? How certain are you about that? How would it sound for me to say, I'm certain enough about it that I'm willing to risk your life on it? You hear how that might come across? I'm willing to risk your life to prove how certain I am. Comes across a little differently than saying, I bet my life on it. By saying, I bet your life on it, ooh, that puts it into a slightly different category. So let me tell you what I've decided to do in terms of even just this whole masking situation. <laughs> Good grief. <laughs> Let's say that for argument's sake, trying to use what Paul has given us in his word as some motivation for how I might come to a decision about what I might do if I'm in different situations. 
I would think, okay, Paul says there's meat offered to idols. We don't do that. That's his, that's his culture. But there's a principle there. The principle is if there are pagan cultures who are offering meat to idols, and for them it becomes religiously significant, but you can buy that meat after it has been used in a worship experience, it's still good meat, then to eat that and have a really good ribeye steak for supper that night, you're somehow violating some religious conscience. And he says, we who know enough know that it's just meat because it only becomes an idol if you impose value upon it, like what Stuart just said. So if Stuart is right, and if Paul is right, and if we know it's just meat, then even though it's been a religious observance to somebody, if you're going to cause them to stumble, if it would drive a wedge between you and that person you're trying to reach for Christ, just don't do it. Give up having that stake tonight if it would help you come across as loving and compassionate so that they would see, oh, you're taking me into consideration more highly than yourself, and thank you for that, and maybe it would build a bridge. Do you see the correlation with what's going on here? So if I think, okay, yeah, this mask is not going to keep me from getting COVID. This, you know, the particles are so small, it's going to go right through it. It's like wearing a chain link fence to try to get, you know, I've heard all the arguments, believe me. But if it, at a, at a very basic level, says to somebody, I see that you're concerned, sure, I'm going to put on a mask to show you out of courtesy that I'm putting you ahead of myself. I'm going to wear the mask as I go into this restaurant before I sit down, and then I'm going to take it off so I can eat. I'm going to wear it while I'm shopping for 20 minutes. I can do that. Do you see how Paul starts to take us away from having team politics and asserting our rights? And Paul is saying, look, we've given up our rights. We have given them up. And we're being treated like refuse, like scum, like a hairball in the sink for the sake of Christ. And yet there you are trying to champion your causes by being right and playing team politics and it's dividing the church and it's ruining the witness to a watching world that desperately needs what only Christ can give. Stop it. And he says, and I say that to you not because I'm trying to shame you, but because I love you as dearly beloved children. Can you catch the heart of Paul? And can you see how relevant it is to us today? Folks, I implore you, put the gospel first. Elevate Jesus Christ. Put politics aside. Put your camp aside for the sake of Jesus Christ. I implore you as a Father implores his dearly loved children because I love you and I want to see Jesus exemplified through our church and how we treat one another. And then we get finally right down to some final words and you'll see if you watch this and I hope you do where Andy Stanley asks Stuart, if you had to look right at the camera and look straight into the faces of the people that are watching you, do you have any final words that you would like to offer? and listen to what Stuart has to say. I think we have the wrong job description for love. As humans, we're always trying to avoid pain. As parents, we're always trying to protect our children from pain. As friends, we're all, always trying to fix each other's pain. And no wonder we always feel like failures because life is, it's, it's the human drama, it's pleasure and pain. And the question I would have you wrestle with is just simply this, what are you gonna trust in when that pain happens, when your certainty is made uncertain? Are you gonna lean your life on your own understanding, your own ability to reason, your own ability to wrap this up and put a bow on it? Or will you trust your life to the only one that doesn't change, that doesn't move, and can actually heal you of your pain, can heal you and your hurt? Um, and the last thing I would say is that your love for Jesus doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be true. It doesn't have to be perfect. It just has to be true. So my... I implore you, if you're, if you're not a Jesus person, you don't follow him, would you consider what it is you're leaning your life up against? And if you are a, a Jesus person, you are, you do follow in the way of Jesus. How much are you trusting him? Are you trusting what you know about him? Or are you really trusting 
him. That's my prayer for people, that they would lean their life, the full weight of their existence on him. Let's pray. God, I am grateful for Paul. I'm grateful for how relevant your word is even today. And I'm grateful for a church that wants to get it right because I, I know for a fact, because I love them and I've, I've worked around and with people, real people who have a heart for you. And I pray that all of us would be as Paul is and that we would examine our own hearts and allow you to examine us. And not to make premature judgments, but to know that you're gonna be the ultimate judge. And I want more than anything for Jesus Christ to be exalted. And that through our lives and through how we're responding to this crisis that we've never gone through before, it's all brand new to a bunch of us, including churches. How do we navigate this stuff? How can we navigate it in such a way that we would be wise in the ways we deal with outsiders, that we would be safe toward one another, that even if there's a question mark, just out of courtesy, we would distance ourselves from other people because we love them so that we wouldn't put somebody in harm's way until we find out, yeah, this is not as bad. Hopefully that'll be the case, but we don't know. Help us to make wise decisions in how we're treating one another and the world and not to build ourselves up in trying to assert our rights. Help us to understand that when we start hearing those sentences coming out of our mouths, that I'm asserting my rights, that Paul was saying, I gave up my rights because I was bought with a price. I have no rights other than belonging to Jesus. I'm a bond slave to him. We have no rights when we're under Jesus' authority. Help us to quit trying to camp out on our rights and just to be Jesus followers. Help us to love people sacrificially, that even if people look at us and say, they're foolish for believing the way they do, they're fools. Help us to be okay with being fools for Christ because we know that there are those who will finally eventually get it. And they'll understand why we've been fools for Christ, because Jesus is the only one who is the same yesterday, today, and forever. And we can lean our full weight on him. We can trust him. No matter the outcome, no matter whether somebody lives or dies, because if they die, they're in heaven forever. But just because we trust God who loves us enough to send his only son to die in our place on the cross to pay the penalty of sin, that's how much he loves us. That's who we want to be as your people. Help us to be those people. I pray in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.